Welcome to The People's Lawyer, a podcast from the National Association of Attorneys General, the nonpartisan organization representing America's attorneys general. In each episode, we'll explore the role of the 56 state and territory AGs as chief legal officers for their states and their work protecting the rule of law and the U.S. Constitution. My name is Allison Gilmore, and I'm Chief Communications Officer at the National Association of Attorneys General. In today's episode, Montana Attorney General and NAG President Tim Fox is joined by Kansas Attorney General Derek Schmidt. Well, thank you, uh, Attorney General Derek Schmidt of Kansas, for joining me on this podcast. Uh, We've done a number of these, and uh, they're great ways to catch up with the fine work that our attorneys general are doing. So I want to start with, uh, uh, I think, uh, an interesting question for you, General Schmidt, as as the chief legal officer of a state or territory. An attorney general job, as you know, can include representing their state in the United States Supreme Court. And your office has had three cases before the court this term alone, and you argued one of those cases yourself. Can you tell us about the experience of arguing a case before the nation's highest court? Well, General Fox, thank you very much for hosting this, and uh, what a terrific idea to be able to converse among our AG community about the work that we all do, and uh, appreciate your leadership on, on pulling these together and hosting this. You know, I don't know if this is true for all of our colleagues among the states, but I know it is for me. One of the one of the tremendous privileges of being a lawyer, of course, is to play at the highest level. And for us, that's advocacy in the U.S. Supreme Court. And one of the great opportunities as a state attorney general is that there may be more opportunity than for at least many private practitioners for us to have the chance to represent our client, the state. Uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court. States are frequent Supreme Court litigants. The court tends to be a bit more generous in granting uh, petitions for certiorari on behalf of states than it is on uh, litigants overall, private litigants overall. Um, And so it's a great uh, opportunity. Uh, I've had the chance now to argue three cases, uh, one of which was this term, Uh, We had, as an office uh, in Kansas, three cases in front of the court this term. Uh, We argued three cases in exactly 28 days, four weeks, which we're not certain is a record, but we think it might be. In any event, uh, it was a a heavy and focused lift and uh, one we won't quickly forget. You know, Supreme Court advocacy is like advocacy in any other court, plus more. Uh, All of the things we would do in any appellate advocacy, we have to do for Supreme Court preparation. But then, of course, a critical difference is that uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, really because it's the final word on what the law means, is perhaps a bit less reliant on precedent than, uh, say, a circuit court of appeals would be. I had a Supreme Court practitioner, a private practitioner who helped prepare us for an argument some time back, who made the point this way, and I thought it was really very good. She said, whenever she's prepping somebody for a circuit court argument, one of the questions she asks is, what's your best case? What's the best precedent in your favor? But she says, I never asked that question in preparing for a Supreme Court argument, because everybody knows what the relevant precedents are, and the real issue is Uh, what should the law be. And so there's that little difference in mindset. But the bottom line is uh, it's, it's preparation, preparation, preparation. 
Well, thank you, General. That's that's great. And uh, I've not had the privilege of arguing before the United States Supreme Court. I've had uh, one case uh, in which oral argument was granted, and I gave that uh, privilege to one of my staff members, and uh, and he did a great job, and we won the case. So you don't always win, but uh, it's nice to win one. So uh, you served as president of the National Association of Attorneys General from July to uh, 2017 to J- June 2018, and I remember your very eloquent uh, final speech at Big Sky uh, when uh, I hosted the summer meeting that year. And you chose to focus your presidential term on protecting America's seniors from elder abuse, and you currently serve as co-chair of the National Association's Elder uh, Justice Committee. And so when it comes to the age of its citizens, Montana, interestingly enough, is the oldest state west of the Mississippi, and we're aging fast here. So protecting seniors is an important issue for me as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the role that attorneys general can play in this area and the priorities that you have for protecting uh, our older citizens in Kansas. Well, I I think probably for all of us who have the privilege of serving in these um, chief legal officer or law enforcement officer roles, protecting vulnerable populations, which may include populations that as a group are vulnerable because of their age, um, is a priority. For those of us like you in Montana and me in Kansas who represent states that have at least large swaths of territory with relatively rapidly aging populations. In Kansas, for example, and it's not an unfamiliar story uh, in in many states, uh, a lot of our rural areas see young people grow up, have a wonderful childhood, and then leave for opportunities in the city, which of course has the effect of raising the overall age of the community that they've left behind as younger folks leave and others like all of us grow older by the day. And so it's really a critically important subject matter for uh, many of us. Every state's law is different and the role of the AG is different, but there are some commonalities, I think, on this subject matter. Uh, We all have access to the bully pulpit by virtue of being a statewide officer, most of us statewide elected officials. And the bully pulpit is important on elder abuse prevention and senior issues. Even if we lack legal authority under our state's laws, we have the ability to convene those who can make a difference and to put the right people in the room to figure out what makes the most sense in terms of protecting seniors in a given state and perhaps to help translate those discussions into effective advocacy with our legislators or our governors or others, sometimes the federal government, uh, to accomplish whatever it is we decide uh, needs done in our state. For some of us, we also have the ability to take direct enforcement action. Uh, On our watch in Kansas, one of the things we have advocated for with the legislature and the governor and succeeded in accomplishing is some enhanced authority to do direct enforcement on elder abuse issues. Kansas, like I think many of our states, is predominantly a local control state. The vast, vast majority of criminal investigation, of prosecution uh, of all sorts is done by local authorities, not by the state or by the attorney general. But there are exceptions in state law where we have a bit more authority than the norm. And uh, we've gotten some enhanced capacities on elder abuse uh, investigation 
and prosecution in Kansas, especially for financial crimes uh, targeting seniors or for physical abuse crimes targeting seniors. And we've really deployed that in a way that's designed uh, on our map to be a force multiplier. We've looked at the areas in the state that really don't need our assistance, the Kansas City metro area, for example, or the Wichita metro area, where they have robust, well-trained, well-resourced local capacity. And then we look at other large parts of the state that uh, you know might have a part-time county attorney and maybe two law enforcement agencies in the county, each of which has fewer than five sworn officers. And we say, maybe that's where we can make the biggest difference by having some uh, elder abuse investigation and prosecution expertise uh, to deal with some of the unique investigatory issues that can accompany uh, uh, physical abuse cases, to deal with some of the you know, thick stacks of paper that can uh, accompany financial abuse cases. Uh, and so that's how we've approached it here. And, and it's been very, very well received not only in our senior community, but also in our uh, law enforcement and prosecution communities. They're grateful to have the help and to have a good partner, and we're glad to do that. Well, that's, that's great work, General, and, and uh, you, uh, you mentioned the challenges that arise, particularly in rural parts of your state, and we have that issue here as well with part-time county attorneys and small law enforcement agencies. And uh, so these are these are challenges I think that we share. And one of the things that my office did was to partner with the Commissioner of uh, Securities and Insurance here in Montana, and indeed actually some other state agencies, uh, to uh, co-create what we call Montana's uh, Eastern Montana Elder Justice Council. Uh, and the governor has recently de- designated this council as a criminal justice agency so that they can review, when necessary, confidential criminal justice information with the idea of helping local prosecutors investigate and build cases of elder abuse. And I think you alluded to some of the partnerships uh, in, in your comments a moment ago that you've had. Can you tell us what sorts of special councils or partnerships that you found to be most effective in building elder abuse and ex- exploitation cases? Yeah, General, I'm a big fan of the multidisciplinary team approach or MDT approach to dealing with elder abuse cases. Uh, there's specialty that law enforcement brings to the table. There is specialty that prosecutors bring to the table. There is specialty that medical professionals bring to the table. There's specialty that elder advocates bring to the table, uh, that area agencies on aging bring to the table, that sometimes local governments bring to the table. And how much better for everybody involved if instead of each of us acting in a given community uh, in our own silos, we are instead comparing notes routinely Uh, looking at where harm is being caused to a particular elder or group of elders, and then figuring it out in a coordinated, cooperative manner how we're all going to work together to solve the overall problem, as opposed to each of us just doing our own individual piece. I just think it's smart. Uh, We've had a couple of areas in our state, our metro areas, where that model has grown Uh, organically Uh, in the Kansas City, suburban Kansas City metro areas on the Kansas side of the state line. uh, They have uh, uh, created this sort of multidisciplinary team model for elder abuse cases, and it works very, very effectively. Uh, So too in Wichita for us, uh, uh, our biggest city. 
but it has proven a very challenging model to extend outside the metro areas to the smaller communities or the more rural areas. And part of the reason that it's so challenging is that, um, you know, every state's different, but we still are structured in so many of our service deliveries uh, along traditional lines. So you might have a, uh, a single county local health agency, but that county is within uh, an area agency on aging's jurisdiction that has four counties, and it's within a judicial district uh, that has eight counties, and within the county, there are four different incorporated towns, each of which has its own police department, all small. And then, of course, there's the sheriff's office countywide. And all of a sudden, it becomes really difficult to figure out how do we build a multidisciplinary team structure to get everybody working together when there's this incredible asymmetry among how the different players have structured themselves. That problem doesn't exist for us in, for example, Johnson County, a single county very large that's in suburban Kansas City, but it does exist when you try to take that model out into, say, western Kansas. So one of the things we've done at the AG's office in Kansas, uh, I've created uh, what we call the Elder and Dependent Adult Abuse Prevention Council. It's a mouthful, but we chose that name because it follows phrasing in one of our statutes that's relevant here. And we use that as a statewide multidisciplinary platform to put all the players together in a room, usually about once uh, uh, every couple of months. It varies a little bit, and it's varied a lot more with the COVID pandemic. But we put the players in a room, and we make sure that they discuss uh, exactly this basket of issues. And one of the things I've tasked them with early on is to try to figure out how we can replicate or modify and then recreate that multidisciplinary team approach to elder abuse cases in multi-county rural areas so that an elder who's abused financially or physically in our most rural county can count on the same sort of coordinated, effective response that uh, an elder similarly abused in our most metropolitan county already can come to expect. And we're making progress, but they're, they're really tough issues because of uh, those historical jurisdictional lines. Well, that's a great start. And I know that uh, on your, under your leadership, uh, much more has been done in Kansas. And we're, we're I think, trying to take a, a, you know, the proper steps here in Montana, too. And I'm not sure that my staff has been in touch with yours. But if we haven't, I think we need to, uh, to do that. Uh, to learn a lot more about what's worked for you in Kansas. And, of course, our jobs uh, in protecting our vulnerable citizens doesn't begin and end with our aging population. We know that it's an important part uh, in, in our role as attorneys general to protect all of our vulnerable citizens. And I know that you've been very active, as has our office, in combating human trafficking in fact, I look back, and in 2012, which is when I started or got elected as Attorney General, uh, both of our states received a failing grade from the nonprofit Shared Hope International for our uh, basically lack of effort in stopping human trafficking in our states. But now both Kansas and Montana have an A grade from that organization. 
can you tell us a little bit about the work that your office has done uh, on human trafficking? Well, first, let me say congratulations to Montana. There are very few of our states that have gone all the way from the bottom to all the way to the top of the Shared Hope um, Protected Innocence Challenge grade. And um, I think it speaks well to your leadership, General, that Montana's among them. So well done. You know, I've been around doing this long enough now. I actually remember the NAG initiative that ultimately culminated in the creation of the Shared Hope International Protected Innocence Challenge. It was in my first year or two serving as Attorney General for Kansas, brand new to the job. Rob McKenna at the time was Attorney General of the state of Washington and also, like you currently, was the president of our organization, the National Association of Attorneys General. And he had selected for his uh, presidential initiative uh, combating human trafficking. I believe he titled it Pillars of Hope, if I remember correctly. And I remember being at one of the gatherings when General McKenna uh, was announcing uh, a provision of his presidential initiative where he rolled out in partnership with Shared Hope that there would be scorecards for states every year. Uh, And I think he made a comment to the effect of, we know we may not be measuring everything or even measuring the right things, but we have to start measuring something or we're not going to know whether we're making any progress. And so uh, we take to heart uh, the importance of the the shared hope scores for those historical reasons. And um, we've come a long way. We've worked with our legislature and our governor repeatedly to strengthen our Kansas statutes uh, regarding uh, combating human trafficking. Uh, We now have really very good architecture in our laws for both labor trafficking and sex trafficking. But of course, just having the laws on the books in some ways is the easy part. Uh, Then there's the ongoing challenge of ensuring that um, the enforcers all around the state, 400 plus local law enforcement agencies in Kansas, um, are up to speed on what the law requires, what the appropriate protocols are that they've had training in human trafficking so that they know what they are seeing when they are seeing it, uh, what to call it, and therefore what to do about it. That private groups, uh, and there are many, many citizen groups in my state, as I'm sure there are in yours, uh, who are passionate on this subject, have an opportunity to engage and bring whatever strengths each of them may have to the table. And I'll tell you, sometimes those conversations as we get coalitions together can be challenging because this is one of those subjects that doesn't really know political bounds. Uh, People as far right on the ideological spectrum and as far left on the ideological spectrum as one can imagine agree that human trafficking is a scourge and want to work together to combat it. But sometimes that means when you get these uh, private dedicated groups in a room they may not like each other very much. They're they're almost in ideological combat 95% of the time. And some of the challenge is just uh, ensuring that civility prevails and that um, everybody recognizes this is an opportunity to set that aside and work together on something we all agree on. Basic coalition building that is easier said than done. One thing we're working on right now uh, we, uh, our office uh, adopted a sort of a model, if you will. It's a protocol for handling juveniles that 
uh, we've provided to law enforcement agencies around our state, not unlike the dynamic with um, elder abuse that we were talking about a few minutes ago, there are tremendous uh, differences in resources, training, and focus on the issue of human trafficking in different parts of our state. Uh, Wichita, for example, has a very, very robust capacity that really, in some ways, is a national model. It integrates their anti-trafficking work with their juvenile services work, uh, with their juvenile prosecution work, and uh, they're, they're very, very good at that. In other areas with very light populations and very, very small law enforcement agencies and a very great geographical distance between a local community and perhaps the nearest uh, juvenile support center, uh, it can become really challenging to have a, a, what do you do when you pick up the kid who's the runaway, may not be from the community, you don't really want to just lock them in the jail, but you need to properly assess them and figure out uh, which avenue they need to follow, uh, what types of services they need to um, have provided. And so we've been working on uh, updating that juvenile protocol statewide. Uh, our goal is to make it so it can operate in those areas like a Wichita or a Kansas City that have robust local capacity, but also so that it's meaningful and useful and relevant in even our smallest community, our smallest police department, uh, if they encounter that kid who needs to be properly assessed uh, in a manner that they are, they don't ordinarily uh, have to deal with. And so that's our current focus on that. And again, we just try to find an area we can add value to the overall state response. And when we find that, we try to pursue it. Well, it sounds like we have kind of a, a similar story there, General. Uh, the first that I had really focused on human trafficking was also uh, as uh, state of Washington Attorney General Rob McKenna was leaving the the uh, presidency of our National Association. I actually came back from uh, my first uh, meeting of the association before I was actually sworn in and uh, began working on the issue uh, because it really hadn't been on my radar screen until uh, I you know, went to that conference uh, of our association and I think it underscores the great work that the Attorney General can collectively do through our national association. And uh, I want to thank you for being a, a leader uh, always in, in that association. So, as you know, and as you mentioned earlier, uh, as the current president of the National Association of Attorneys General, I'm focusing my presidential term on the topic of transformational leadership and civility with a goal really of encouraging and promoting the kind of collaboration among the attorneys general that we've seen so often uh, result in great work, regardless of our political parties. And in your year as president of the National Association, you charted a course for, for the association that remained focused on the issues that unite the community of attorneys general. Can you tell us what you've learned from working across party lines with your Attorney General colleagues during your time as Kansas Attorney General. Well, let me start with uh, uh, let me start with the negative statement so that I can juxtapose the positive. I mean, we live in a time; it's no great revelation uh, when the far easier course in almost every public venture uh, is to find the points of disagreement uh, to underscore disputes to. 
uh, seek uh, points of differentiation with uh, others who may have a different political affiliation or a different uh, interest or a different objective. Uh, and of course, those differences become magnified in you know what today in the second decade of the 21st century passes for modern communications mechanisms. Something that would have been whispered and forgotten a generation ago is now shouted digitally and never forgotten, always out there to be dredged up again and again and again and to keep the wound raw. And so um, the easy thing right now is to focus on the differences. And there's a place for that. That's the world we live in. But in my view, at least, uh, among the attorneys, the community of attorneys general, uh, NAG is not the place for that. We have other associations. We have the partisan associations that have uh, as their mission to uh, focus on some of those types of issues. I think the unique value that NAG brings to the community of attorneys general is a forum where we can focus on issues that don't divide us. We can focus on issues where, sure, we may have different ideas and approaches and philosophies, but they're not divisive. They're areas where we have great unanimity of purpose and are sharing different points of view with the objective of each making the other stronger, not the objective of uh, figuring out how to engage in, in political or ideological combat with those who differ from us. So that's why, as you point out, uh, you know, when I had the privilege of serving as our president, I focused on elder abuse. It's an area that doesn't know a philosophical divide. We were able to take lots of different points of view, synthesize them, and I hope enable each of us as a state or territory attorney general uh, to, to glean information that made us better at our jobs back home, whether we're Democrat or Republican or, or, or other. I think other subject matter that has the potential for that are things like human trafficking we've already talked about. I think crime victim support and victim services also is an area that most of us have some involvement in and that has the ability to be uh, uniting. I remember early in my service as attorney general uh, going to NAG meetings and we would have what candidly were fairly mundane discussions, uh, often led by our colleagues, very knowledgeable colleagues, uh, about things like, for example, the you know, ethical issues that are presented when you're a, a public sector attorney representing multiple different state entities that may have different uh, interests, uh, and you're trying to sort out what the proper role for the attorney general is. Uh, questions like, who's your client, which is never as easy to answer for a, an attorney general as it is uh, in the private sector, perhaps. So I, I think those are the types of things that can really bring us together. And, and I tell you, when we focus on those things, uh, we can really make a powerful difference as an AG community, Democrats, Republicans working together. And, uh, and I always just hope we don't damage those personal relationships in the partisan combat side of our job to an extent that makes it more difficult for us to then work together in the non-ideological, um, bipartisan, nonpartisan part of the job. And, and so far, I, th I think credit to all of our colleagues, uh, despite the pressures, they've done a really good job of being able to wear the two hats independently. That's a great summary. And I, you know, I'm at the end of uh, my time as Montana's attorney general here at the end of the year. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful that, uh, 
you know, the legacy that we can all leave is helpful to those who come after us. And, and, uh, and I'm positive that uh, some of the best leaders in our nation are attorneys general, and uh, we can hopefully uh, be able to teach other leaders as well about what's worked for us. And uh, you've been a real uh, inspiration to me and others uh, of our colleagues. General Schmidt, I want to thank you for taking some time today to visit with us about uh, the work that you do and that we all do as attorneys general, and uh, wish you well. Thank you, General Fox, and I just want to thank you for your leadership as Montana's Attorney General, your national leadership as our NAG president, and your friendship over the years. And with whatever comes next for you, uh, I look forward to continuing our relationship. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The People's Lawyer. We look forward to bringing you additional insights about the work of state attorneys general, including conversations with individual AGs about important legal issues in future episodes. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at naag.org or email podcast at nag.org.